Okay, uh, understanding the human brain and how it works uh, is pretty daunting um, <clears throat> kinds of uh, kind of task. Um, <clears throat> we do know some things about the brain, and um, uh, there's a lot we still need to learn. Uh, a lot we don't know. Um, <clears throat> what I can tell you is that um, uh, there are some patterns and things that will help to make it easier to understand how the brain works. Uh, and so I'll be pointing out some of those patterns and trends and things uh, and give you kind of an overview in what some of the different parts of the brain uh, do. Right? Now, I think in order to make sense out of this, uh, we gotta look at where this information comes from uh, and the ways that um, people have studied the brain in order to figure out how it works. Um, <clears throat> uh, we've known for a long time, people have known for a long time that the brain is important for understanding uh, things like personality and attention and memory and a lot of other kinds of things, thinking. Um, and um, But they've had almost no way to study that for thousands of years. All they could really do was look at a dead brain. And you really can't tell much about how a brain works by looking at a dead brain. They tried. Uh, and so what they did for years was to um, uh, examine dead brains, try to pick them apart, try to see where the component parts were and how they were fit together. Now, it can be hard to tell in, in, a, um, in an autopsy uh, where one part of a brain, one part of the brain ends and the next one begins. It's all mostly sort of the same color and texture and uh, you know it can be hard to even discern the different parts. But that's what early anatomists did a lot of. Uh, they dissected a lot of brains and they named parts. They gave names to the parts of the brain that we still use today. Um, notice the challenge there is that, um, challenge for us, is that um, these parts of the brain that we're gonna be talking about were named by people who had no idea what these parts of the brain did. So the names aren't linked to, um, to function at all. Um, in general, most parts of, uh, most names of parts of the brain and nervous system and a lot of other things in anatomy, uh, are uh, use one of two conventions. Uh, one is that um, uh, they'll name it according to its relative location, where it is compared to other stuff. So like uh, there's a part of the brain we'll see called the hypothalamus. Hypo means below. The thalamus is a part of the brain, the hypothalamus is the part right below that, right? So it's just telling location, that all, that's all it tells. The other naming convention is to say what it looks like, <laughs> what it vaguely resembles. Um, and so we'll look at another part of the brain um, that has been called, that is, that is called the hippocampus. Uh, hippocampus is Greek for seahorse. And so apparently somebody at some point thought it looked like a seahorse. I don't really see it myself, but um, <laughs> that's what they thought. Uh, and um, so, so the naming conventions are, you know, a little bit difficult sometimes because they don't really mean anything to us nowadays as far as what the parts of the brain do. Um, when, um, when people developed ways of doing surgery uh, that um, animals and people could have surgery and live to tell about it, um, then that ushered in the next possible way of studying the brain, uh, and that's by doing damage or lesioning studies, um, where what they could do is to remove or destroy a small part of the brain and see what effect it has on the animal's behavior. Uh, we'll see some um, uh, research uh, that worked that way to um, identify you know, functions of uh, different parts or even different parts of parts of the brain. 
Uh, for example, um, uh, if you remove or actually burn out ablate uh, one little small area of the hypothalamus in rats, rats eat voraciously and they don't stop eating and they blow up to three times their normal weight. If instead you destroy a part of the hypothalamus that's sort of right next to that other part, but leave that part alone, um, they're not going to eat at all and they're going to waste away essentially, even though food is available to them. So based on studies like that, you know, people learn that, okay, well, the hypothalamus is involved in some things having to do with hunger and satiety. That is the opposite of hunger or um, feeling full and stopping eating. So we'll see some um, uh, information that was drawn from those kind of studies, right? The thing to be careful with with that is that um, just because those studies, even with that example, would show that hunger and satiety are influenced by um, are you are influenced in some way by the hypothalamus that doesn't mean it's the only place in the brain that influences hunger and satiety uh, imagine that you've got several uh, parts in the brain arranged in a circuit any one of them uh, gets damaged or destroyed it's gonna keep the whole function from working right next thing to come along with brain studies is eeg electroencephalograph which i mentioned in the earlier podcast um, about uh, um, electrical activity in nerves because in EEG what we're measuring is the electrical activity, uh, the sum total of electrical activity outside of the brain, sum total of billions of neurons. And uh, this gives us what people call brain waves, right? What we measure with EEG is brain waves. And so studies using EEG uh, could tell something about where some of the activity is located in the brain. Uh, generally speaking, you know, generally more on this side or that side or front or back or whatever, and can tell something about overall levels of activity. Um, it wasn't until the development of uh, brain imaging techniques, uh, CAT scans, MRIs, PET scans, uh, that um, we could look into brains, into living brains. Now, uh, these um, imaging tools are used for imaging a lot of things in the body, usually soft tissue in the body, um, but they're particularly useful for, um, for imaging brains and seeing the structure of things. Um, development of PET scans and functional MRIs allowed people to look at function of uh, the brain. So not only what the parts are, but which parts are active while you're doing certain kinds of things. So we can have somebody hooked up to a PET scan or a functional MRI, ask them to put words in alphabetical order or, um, or look at this picture and count the number of stars you see or any, anything. Um, and you can see which parts of their brain are most active in performing those tasks. That's been very helpful with learning how the brain is wired, uh, how connections, uh, how circuits run through the brain. There is one other area of uh, one other way of um, studying the brain called um, uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation (TMS). Uh, TMS um, uh, in, involves using a um, magnetic field to temporarily turn off specific areas of the brain. So it's sort of like a temporary lesioning study where the lesion you know goes away after a little while. But we can temporarily turn off uh, things. Um, it's, um, it seems to me that a lot of the uh, use of transcranial magnetic stimulation has um, 
uh, gone very quickly to applications of that rather than to uh, studies of the brain itself. But people realized that they could use that uh, to treat um, depression and possibly some other kinds of things. So there's um, a good deal of research on uh, using techniques like that for treatment more so than just study of the brain now. Now, um, we separate, uh, uh, we're talking about the central nervous system now. The central nervous system is separated into the brain and the spinal cord. Um, the brain consists of gray matter. The spinal cord and the rest of the nerves in the nervous system consist of white matter. The difference between those, um, the difference in color, and it really is a difference in color, is due to the amount of myelin uh, that's present in those areas. In the brain, there are going to be myelinated axons, but the axons don't need to be as long because they don't have as far to reach to go to the next cell. So there's going to be, tend to be less myelin and relatively more cells and cell bodies, right? So the appearance there is gray. Um, the uh, ner the um, spinal cord and the rest of the nerves throughout the body, if you can look at them directly, they'll appear white because, again, it's mostly not myelin, which is fat. Um, the spinal cord itself, uh, you know, looks a lot like string cheese, right? Kind of fibrous and um, uh, quite white, right? Um, <clears throat> the um, overall, the overall organization of the brain. Um, <clears throat> uh, in order to talk about that, we first separate the human brain into three regions: the hindbrain, the midbrain, and the forebrain. Hind at the back mid in the middle, and four in the front. Hindbrain, midbrain, and forebrain. The textbook has a nice diagram of this uh, on page 61, figure 2.13, the three main divisions, the hindbrain, the midbrain, and the forebrain. Then we also see some of the spinal cord. But we've got the hindbrain, midbrain, and forebrain in three different colors there. And at first glance, it's like, where is that midbrain? It's pretty tiny. And who decided on this way to separate the brain? I mean, this doesn't make sense, right? Um, you've got almost all, or the vast majority of the human brain is in this blue forebrain part, and you've got these others that are much smaller. Well, the reason for that kind of uh, division of things is to allow for um, comparison of brains across animal species so that in any animal we can look at their brain and we can look at um, we can separate it into those same kind of general regions hindbrain midbrain and forebrain and what we see is that um, uh, the um, parts of the brain towards the back and bottom the hindbrain those are the most primitive parts of the brain those are the parts of the brain that are that any animal that moves is going to need. And, um, and then as we move forward in the brain, through the midbrain and to the forebrain, we get to areas that process more and more complex kinds of functions uh, to where once we get to the very front of the brain, just behind your forehead in the prefrontal cortex, that's some of the highest human functions, things like judgment and personality and problem solving and working memory and a lot of stuff like that. So the reason that the human brain is so disproportionate that way is because it's not typical of an animal brain. Um, most animals uh, have smaller, high, smaller forebrains. Um, they'll often have bigger midbrains, um, and their forebrains are about the same. So um, um, the forebrain, I'm sorry, the hindbrain and midbrain together are sometimes referred to as our reptilian brain. And, um, and that's because those two parts, the hindbrain and midbrain, 
make up pretty much all of the brain of a reptile. They don't have much forebrain at all. Uh, so if you're looking at an alligator brain or a snake brain, it's going to be very similar to, sort of similar to the um, hindbrain and midbrain of a human, but without all this other stuff on top of it that the human has in the forebrain. So that's why we got so much forebrain, because that's the part that's most uniquely different from other species. We can take that further, that um, if we go um, up the phylogenetic scale, that is uh, from simplest animals to more and more complex animals, and of course humans, we see ourselves as the most complex of animals, right? We're gonna see bigger and bigger uh, forebrains um, so that uh, our closest biological relative that's alive now would probably be uh, chimpanzees or bonobos. Um, and uh, they're gonna have a good deal of forebrain, but it's not as much as us, <laughs> um, right? Whereas those crocodiles and snakes uh, just have, have no forebrain at all. So, um, so that organization of things is useful to keep in mind as you look at the different parts of the brain because those parts in the hindbrain, well, any animal that moves is going to need those. So here we're talking basic life support functions, uh, posture, uh, some basic reflexes, breathing, um, maintenance of consciousness overall, right, uh, or a certain level of uh, activity in the brain, right? Um, uh, so there we've got three parts, the hind, uh, the um, medulla, the pons, and the cerebellum. Now, I want to mention something that um, happens in the brain stem, which is the way we talk about the uh, um, medulla and the uh, pons together. Uh, the medulla and the pons together are sometimes called the brain stem because that's what they look like. They look like, uh, you know, the spinal cord comes up into the head and there's this stem and then there's this big cauliflower thing that uh, grows out of the top of it. That's the rest of the brain. Well, um, <clears throat> those basic life support functions that are handled there include uh, a basic reflex called an orienting reflex. This orienting reflex uh, is the tendency for an animal or human to notice immediate change, uh, sorry, changes in their immediate environment. So that, um, you know, you're aware of your environment around you, but something changes. There's a loud noise, a light comes on or goes off, somebody says your name, somebody enters the room, that's a change. This reflex, orienting reflex, directs your attention to that. Um, <clears throat> now, the reason I'm telling you this is that um, I'm going to build on this to, uh, to show you how some other things work in the brain, but that this is the first step. And also to notice that um, uh, I'll also point out a theme in things in how the brain works, that the brain is tuned to notice changes. When things are always the same, the brain doesn't really need that information as much. It needs to know about changes. Uh, and, um, and so changes in our immediate environment is one way that we do that. We'll look at that also later on uh, when we look at sensation and perception. Right? So we've got this basic orienting reflex. If we move up to the midbrain, um, your textbook uh, talks about um, one area of the midbrain uh, called the substantia nigra. Uh, the substantia nigra uh, is an area of the midbrain uh, that's involved in producing the neurotransmitter dopamine. So I guess it was in the previous podcast I mentioned that uh, people with Parkinson's disease um, have some, well, they actually have degeneration of the substantia nigra, so it's not producing enough dopamine um, uh, for the brain and nervous system to use, right? Uh, so that's why your textbook says that it's involved in movement. 
If we move to the uh, uh, forebrain, then um, that's the biggest part of the human brain. So there's a few more parts to talk about there. The human forebrain um, is the biggest part of the human brain. I think it's 85% of the mass of the human brain overall. And it's naturally separated down the middle um, uh, by a gap that goes all the way down to some structures uh, deep down there. So if you looked at a brain from the outside, most of what you would see would be uh, forebrain. And more specifically, it would be cerebral cortex, which is the gray wrinkly stuff on the outside. But consider that there's a lot of stuff underneath that. Imagine the basic structure of the brain as we talked about the brainstem before, right? Uh, that it's thickening up of the spinal cord. Um, <clears throat> then there's some stuff sitting directly on top of the brainstem. Those are parts of the forebrain that we'll get to in a minute, um, but those are below the cerebral cortex. So those are referred to as subcortical forebrain structures. And then above and wrapping all around those, like a cap, is the cerebral cortex or cerebrum. Um, <clears throat> cortex means um, skin or rind, like the rind of a fruit, and so it's the part on the outside. So if we were gonna look at a brain um, on gross examination, what we would see mostly is cerebral cortex. There's a lot of structures underneath that we wanna see. And so a good way of um, visualizing those is to separate the brain down the middle through that um, central commissure, that, that um, uh, gap between the two hemispheres, um, <clears throat> separate it. Now, we don't actually have, we wouldn't, if we were dissecting a brain, we wouldn't actually have to cut anything until we got down to some of those uh, subcortical structures in the forebrain um, <clears throat> and the brain stem, because the brain is naturally separated into those two different hemispheres. But then if we look at that, um, what we've cut there, what we've got uh, then is a mid-sagittal section of the brain. And that's what many of the diagrams in your textbook are, uh, mid-sagittal. They're cut right down the middle and looking up uh, into one side because we can see a lot of the important structures there. Um, many of those structures fall on the midline and some are just on either side of the midline. So in diagrams, they can cheat it a little bit and, you know, uh, and put, it there, put it so that it appears there. So, uh, so those uh, kinds of diagrams are pretty useful. Um, so first off, we've got to look at subcortical forebrain structures and then the cerebral cortex. Um, subcortical forebrain structures uh, that you'll want to know about, that your textbook tells you about, are, um, <clears throat> let's see if I can get the order that they present them in, that might be nice. Um, <clears throat> uh, it looks like, um, we cover the thalamus, the hypothalamus, the hippocampus, the amygdala, the basal ganglia, and then the cerebral cortex that covers it all like a cap. Right? Um, uh, the thalamus is a sensory relay station. Um, and I think that's a good thing to remember about the thalamus. Associate that in your mind. Thalamus, sensory relay station. What does that mean? That means that all sensory information that comes into the brain well, that's sort of redundant, actually. All information that comes into the brain is sensory. That is, it's coming from some sense somewhere, vision, uh, touch, hearing, whatever, all that information that's coming in. It goes first to the thalamus. And from the thalamus, it's going to be directed to other parts of the brain for processing. But that's the gateway that um, uh, the processing center, uh, the relay station that, um, that it goes to first before, before being sent to other parts of the brain.
There's one exception to this, one sense channel that doesn't go through the thalamus, and that's the sense of smell. The sense of smell bypasses the thalamus and goes straight to the cerebral cortex for processing. I don't know why that is. I've never seen a, anybody have a good explanation of why that is. Um, but um, but uh, when we talk about sensation and perception, I will tell you some implications of that, you know, what that does for us <laughs> and stuff like that. But, um, but that is the one exception. So notice that your only window to the outside world is through the thalamus, except for smell. Um, everything uh, that's coming into the brain is going to go to the thalamus first and then be projected to other areas of the brain. The hypothalamus, I mentioned before as an example of, you know, one of those neuroanatomical terms that just tells location, the hypothalamus is just below the thalamus. They're not particularly related. Uh, the hypothalamus is a very small part of the brain. It's about the size of a, a bean, a red bean, um, <clears throat> and, um, but it's got a lot of important regulatory functions. Uh, I did actually mention the hypothalamus in an example before uh, when I told you about uh, destroying little parts of rats' hypothalamuses that cause them to eat or not to eat, right? And so that's one example, uh, hunger and satiety, one example of the systems that are regulated through the hypothalamus. Hypothalamus is also going to regulate things related to um, body temperature, uh, to... Um, the uh, triggering a fight or flight response uh, to uh, sexual motivations and regulation of menstrual cycle and a lot of regulatory kinds of things right in the uh, hypothalamus. That hypothalamus in, uh, incidentally is right above a part of the uh, endocrine system called the pituitary gland. Now we'll be talking about the endocrine system separately later on. I guess that we'll get to that next week. Um, but the endocrine system is that other communication system through the body. But I mention it now because right here is the connection between the two systems. Uh, the nervous system um, and the brain operating in the hypothalamus connected both physically and chemically um, by, releasing by releasing chemicals uh, to the endocrine system um, in the pituitary gland, which controls the rest of the endocrine system. Uh, the next part to mention is the hippocampus. Uh, the hippocampus is involved in memory and spatial, particularly spatial memory, but also in the uh, storage and retrieval of other kinds of memory information. Um, uh, let's see, so that um, most memory information is not stored in the hippocampus, but it's stored by the hippocampus. Uh, so it's going to go into the hippocampus, and the hippocampus is going to decide where to store that throughout the rest of the brain, keep track of it to be able to to be able to retrieve it later on. So if people have problems with their hippocampus, they're going to have problems with memory. We'll talk about that more when we look at memory uh, in a later chapter. Um, uh, I did mention also spatial memory with the hippocampus. Uh, uh, there were some... Uh, classic studies that they looked at London cab drivers uh, and found that London cab drivers tended to have reasonably larger, <laughs> significantly larger hippocampus, hippocampuses, hippocampi, <laughs> than, um, than people who weren't London cab drivers. Uh, and they realized that, um, that part of this was that uh, they have to learn so much spatial information in terms of uh, city maps and where things are and how to get from one place to another. Um, and they were, uh, so they were using their hippocampus much more and so that it actually was getting bigger. Right? Next part to mention is the amygdala. Uh, the amygdala is involved in the um, uh, some processing of emotions, particularly motivating emotions, 
like anger and fear. Anger and fear that make you want to get up and do something, right? The amygdala, uh, we can say, contains the brain's alarm system so that um, it's going to make a judgment as to whether or not something is dangerous. So uh, remember from a few minutes ago, the um, orienting reflex in the brain stem, the orienting reflex that directs your attention to some, some change in your immediate environment. Well, the next thing to happen after that happens is the message goes to the amygdala. And the amygdala's got to make a judgment. It's got to decide, is this new thing dangerous to me? Is it a threat or not? And if it is a threat, then what the amygdala is going to do is it's going to send a message to the hypothalamus. And the hypothalamus then is going to kick off a fight or flight system, fight or flight response through the body. A fight or flight response is a complex reflex uh, that um, allows an organism to defend itself or something like that in, in the case of immediate danger. We'll talk about that fight or flight response uh, more later on, I guess that'll be next week, uh, with the peripheral nervous system, because uh, we'll look at how that actually works. But here's the trigger for it, right? First, we notice something in our environment through the orienting reflex. Uh, second, the amygdala makes a judgment about whether that's a threat or not. And if it says it's a threat, it sends it to the hypothalamus. Um, uh, the hypothalamus then tricks, ticks off a fight or flight response. There's one more step involved that I haven't told you yet. And that's that that information is also going to go to the cerebral cortex, to the highest conscious, most sophisticated parts of the brain. But we'll come back to that when we talk about the cerebral cortex. Uh, let's see, the next part your, your textbook mentions are the basal ganglia. Uh, basal ganglia are structures that are um, seem to be mostly involved in movement, but particularly starting movements and stopping movements, or starting things and stopping things. Um, because of where the basal ganglia are situated in the brain, and because of the way that the blood vessels run through the brain, um, this is one area that's particularly vulnerable to damage when people have a stroke. Um, <clears throat> there are a few places that are, you know, more likely to be damaged, but, um, but this is one of them. And so, um, sometimes when people have a stroke and it affects the basal ganglia, um, they can have difficulty with starting or stopping actions. They may get stuck on one particular movement and go over and do it over and over again. Like, um, like, uh, I've seen a lot of times where patients, you know, you ask them to sign something and they start signing their name and they just keep on going with spirals or something like that, uh, unable to stop, uh, the motion or sometimes unable to start the motion at all. Um, so they may, so a person may be thinking, oh, I need to get up and do this thing, but just unable to, uh, uh, to spark the movement at all. Okay, the last major part of the um, forebrain is the biggest part. And so there's a lot to talk about here. For this last part is the cerebral cortex, or sometimes just called the cerebrum, or sometimes just called the cortex. Um, the cerebral cortex is the gray wrinkly stuff that covers uh, these other brain parts for the most part, um, and is kind of gray and wrinkly. Uh, it's naturally separated into those two sides, two hemispheres, a right and left hemisphere. The wrinkles in the cerebral cortex are important. Um, the wrinkles give more surface area to the cerebral cortex. And um, uh, we learned a good while ago that, um, that the way that the uh, neurons are arranged in the cerebral cortex is in layers. 
there are uh, seven layers of cells throughout the cerebral cortex. And, um, and so uh, if you imagine that like a big sheet of seven, uh, with seven layers, uh, if you crumple up that sheet into a ball, into a small area, you can fit a lot more of the uh, surface area into a smaller space. And so that's what the wrinkles in the brain do. They increase the surface area um, so that can be to increase processing ability, right? Um, the uh, cerebral cortex is um, separated for purposes of study into um, four major areas, four major regions. And um, those are in your textbook. Uh, in figure 2.17 on page 66, um, the, uh, the diagram on the left part of that, which is relatively simpler, it has fewer uh, colors, that's showing the four lobes of the cerebral cortex. Um, the person behind him, actually it's the same person, but uh, with a different view of his brain is showing a little bit more specificity there. So some particular areas of each of those lobes. But first off, look at the four lobes. We've got four lobes, uh, an occipital lobe in the back, uh, parietal lobe toward the top and back, uh, frontal lobe towards the top and front, and then temporal lobes along the side uh, above the ears, right? Now, strictly speaking, you've got four lobes, but you've got two of each of them, right? There's, you've got one on each side. Uh, so frequently we'll talk about the left frontal cortex or the right frontal cortex or whatever. Um, now, to some extent, we can talk about these lobes being involved in different kinds of functions. Uh, so that we can say that there are particular jobs that are done by one lobe more so than another. Like, for instance, vision is a good example. Uh, processing visual information, um, primary processing of that information is going to happen in the occipital lobe. So information from your eyes, from your retinas, is going to travel through optic nerve to the sensory relay station in the brain called the thalamus, remember? Um, and then from there, it's going to be uh, projected back to the um, occipital lobe where it's going to be broken down and processed. So there are some kinds of uh, areas of the brain that we can talk about having very specific functions. And that's what, um, what shows up in the right part, of, in the right side of that um, diagram, uh, some of the primary areas. The one I've mentioned already is the primary visual cortex that's in the occipital lobe. We also show there the uh, primary auditory cortex, which is in uh, bright green in the temporal lobe, and the primary uh, uh, somatosensory cortex and primary motor cortex that are stripes um, along the uh, very back of the frontal lobe and front of the parietal lobe. Right? These are primary areas in the brain. There are also secondary and tertiary areas in the brain. But what we're looking at here is the primary areas. Those are the ones we know the most about. Um, and uh, those are the ones where processing is most localized. So we can say that, yeah, primary visual processing is going to happen in that visual cortex. But what happens to the information after it uh, after it's finished there, after it's processed in the primary visual cortex? Well, it's got to hook up with other stuff. And so a lot of those other areas of the brain that, um, that aren't uh, colored in in, your, um, in that diagram, they're kind of pink or, uh, or I don't know what that color is, kind of brownish. Um, <clears throat> uh, those uh, are largely association areas 
where the organization of the brain gets really, really complex because it's going to be information from a lot of different places integrating. And that organization is also going to be different in different individuals um, because it's going to rely on your life experiences and uh, the input that your brain has had to how it's going to organize some of that. So it's going to be slightly different in different people. Um, but um, but if we go to uh, first to our primary areas, um, I mentioned already the primary visual cortex uh, in the um, occipital lobe. Um, for hearing, you know, we have a, uh, a part that's called the primary auditory cortex in the temporal lobes. Um, so uh, sound information from your ears is going to come in through auditory nerves. It's going to go first to the sensory relay station called the thalamus. And from there, it's going to be projected actually to the opposite side of the brain uh, in the temporal lobes for, the, uh, for primary auditory processing. But again, after it's processed there, primarily it's going to need to communicate with our other areas of the brain. Um, the primary areas in the frontal lobe and the um, parietal lobe are right next to one another. Uh, those are those stripes at the top of the brain. Um, the, um, the primary motor cortex in that diagram is in blue. Uh, primary somatosensory cortex is in purple. The uh, motor cortex is the last ridge uh, in the back of the forebrain, I'm sorry, the uh, frontal cortex, frontal lobe. And the um, somatosensory cortex is the first uh, ridge in the front of the parietal cortex, and that puts them right next to each other. Now, these are pretty interesting areas, too, because um, each of these has um, a point-to-point -point relationship with a place on the body, on the person's body, so that um, uh, for the primary motor cortex, uh, there are places on the primary motor cortex that if you were to stimulate that place, it would cause movement in the body at a particular place. And, to, and in studies where they've done things like that, they've been able to map out how that uh, appears in the layout of the primary motor cortex. And so that's where you get um, images like the weird one in figure 2.18, which is uh, a motor homunculus um, uh, on the left side, the primary motor cortex, where it's showing the relative amount of brain space uh, that's dedicated to different to moving different parts of the body on the opposite side. Um, and so, um, uh, so another way of saying that is that if you are moving your finger, well, that's because it started in one particular area of that uh, prefrontal cortex. Right behind, I'm sorry, of that um, primary motor cortex, uh, right behind the primary motor cortex is the primary somatosensory cortex. Somatosensory refers to body sensation. So sensations from the body and where they are. So localizing sensations in the body. And so here we need another map of the body. And so you've also got a, a sensory homunculus um, shown uh, on the right side of that diagram, figure 2.18. And um, they're slightly different, right? That, um, uh, that sensory areas dedicated to the lips and the tongue and uh, face are much bigger right? Because we have more sensation there. Um, uh, and so you get some idea of relative um, uh, amount of sensation and relative amount of motor control. Now, um, because of where these uh, bands are located in the brain 
And because of the uh, way that blood vessels are arranged in the vein in the brain, these are also areas that are vulnerable to the damage of a stroke. If somebody has a stroke, one of the most likely areas that they're going to have a stroke that's going to be affected is in this primary motor cortex and primary sensory cortex. And different size stroke can affect differently, but if you've ever known somebody who's had a stroke, um, they might have difficulty moving one side of their body, or they might have difficulty with sensing things on one side of their body. They might have a droop in their face on one side of their body, right? All that's because one side of the um, uh, um, one cerebral hemisphere is affected in the stroke, and so that's affecting the um, mode, the movement and sensation possibly on one half of the body, right on the other side of the brain. All right, um, <clears throat> let's see. Um, the um, last of the parts of the brain to talk about is the prefrontal cortex. Um, now, prefrontal cortex is part of the frontal. Uh, lobes, but it's the very front. So you might think of it as being the front of the frontal lobes. Now in the um, diagram on uh, page 66, uh, they have the prefrontal cortex as everything in the cortex except for the primary motor cortex. That's not really right. Um, <clears throat> the prefrontal cortex is the very front of the cortex, the frontal lobes, uh, but it would be the very front that's right behind your, um, uh, your forehead. Now, if you remember from our overall organization of the brain, we moved from um, uh, life-sustaining functions in the back and bottom of the brain that any animal would need to more and more higher complex functions to places where in the front of the brain we've got the most significant differences in the human brain from other animals. And guess what? Here we are in the prefrontal cortex. So we can say that the prefrontal cortex is the most uniquely human part of the brain, uh, and things that are associated with being uniquely human are mostly going to be handled there. I mean, um, things like uh, personality and judgment and some problem solving and working memory and um, uh, ability to uh, think abstractly, a lot of things like that are going to be handled in that prefrontal cortex. The prefrontal cortex um, is uh, a very important part of the human brain, but, um, but guess what? It's also vulnerable, not so much to strokes, but to head injuries, traumatic brain injuries. Um, because that prefrontal cortex is right behind your forehead and it's sitting on a bony plate um, at, that forms a shelf in your skull, um, <clears throat> uh, if the... Um, if somebody gets knocked on the head uh, by a bat or by a baseball or they're tackled or by a punch or they are mugged or they're in a car wreck or they fall off a horse or a lot of different things like that where they could have some um, uh, have something strike their head or their head strike something, their brain can move around inside of there. Even if the skull isn't fractured, the brain can be damaged um, because of that kind of movement. One of the first indications of the importance of that prefrontal cortex uh, was a dude named Phineas Gage. And your textbook tells you the story of Phineas Gage, I believe. Um, uh, and so I won't repeat it, but, uh, but basically um, Phineas Gage um, uh, wasn't the first person to have damage to his free 
prefrontal cortex, but he was one of the first to survive it <laughs> and to live to tell about it. And uh, so people could see the dramatic change in Phineas Gage uh, that um, he changed with regard to his his temperament. He became um, he became uh, impatient and argumentative, and he couldn't hold his job anymore. And this was a significant change from the way he was before. Now, um, unfortunately, this kind of damage has happened to a lot of other people too. Uh, and so it's not just about Phineas Gage. We know that these parts of the brain are involved in a lot of these things. And so, so many times when people have injuries to that part of the brain, um, they're liable to show, well, personality changes. They may have difficulty with, um, with judgment or impulsivity. They're liable to become more impulsive, uh, argumentative, or other things like that uh, related to the um, damage to the uh, prefrontal cortex. Um, <clears throat> all right, uh, let's see. What we'll do next week is cover some of the things about the um, peripheral nervous system um, that starts in your textbook on page 71. Uh, so for this week, um, I think I put the page numbers in the to-do list, but make sure you cover uh, those pages um, of chapter 2 up through page, well, I guess... 71 or the beginning of 71 um, <clears throat> and um, let me know if you have any questions please you know post questions in the open discussion board on blackboard or email them to me or send me um, messages I always want to say chat but they call it uh, no I always want to say text but they call it chat uh, in Microsoft Teams uh, any of those ways to get in touch with me is fine all right have a good uh, week let me know if you have any kind of questions